Welcome to The Professor and The Hack. We're up to episode 16. Thanks for sticking with us. I am The Hack. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And with me is The Professor, Peter Van Onselen. You're looking splendidly relaxed, Peter. Have you missed me? Well, I, I would have missed you, but I've actually <laughs> been on holiday too. So we're both... So we're both the full bottle on what's been going on in Australian politics. We got nothing. <laughs> we got nothing. Uh, nice to take a break, though, after the whole election frenzy. But we're about to get back into it again. Parliament resuming for two weeks. We've had, the, obviously, the first initial resumption and the tax stuff went through. How did that go, by the way? Yeah, well, look, that. I mean, I was on leave during that, but the government got what it wanted uh, and the Labor Party or most people in the Labor Party got what they wanted, which was to get this off the agenda and not have Anthony Albanese's first real test as a Labor leader be that he blocked tax cuts. I mean, they did signal that they don't agree with the high-end tax cuts. They, they don't believe that that fits with Labor values but they ultimately ended up waving the whole thing through. So Scott Morrison's happy. Uh, he had his big election commitment. He only really had one of major significance. It was the tax cuts. And they've gone through. But let's not forget, uh, most of the high-end tax cuts don't actually take effect until I think it's 2024. Mm. Now, that's a long way off. A another lot can election. happen to the budget. There is another election before then. What this really is, we can argue about whether it's too flat in the changes that they've made, but what it essentially is doing is it's it's baking in dealing with bracket creep over the next five or so years. Which so, is so you can make an argument on one level it's economically sound to do it. Would you make that argument? I wouldn't. Uh, I, I think in a bubble it's economically sound to do it as a sort of... Actually, economically sound is almost the wrong word. I think it's in a public policy sense sound to do it because I like having a policy where bracket creep gets automatically dealt with and whilst this doesn't do that, it, if you like, it's looking onto the horizon. But in the context of where the economy's at, a lot of people would argue that this is risky business because if the surplus is important and that's debatable in itself, but if it is important uh, and if the underlying balancing of the budget is important, then this is a danger because not only will it carve an enormous amount of revenue out by giving people back their own income via these tax cuts, it also can create a scenario where as a result of that, obviously, the government suddenly can also face a downturn in other areas of revenue and then it's also losing the income tax at the same time. So the issue is off the table for now, but it's not going to be off the table at the next election because of the fact that those high-end income tax cuts will fall into the next parliament. So we already can see some of the measurements of the next electoral debate in the next election. But it would require, I think, I might be wrong, I think it would require for it to become really contested for one side or the other to say we weren't going to proceed with them because it's already legislated. But, but, but yeah, that's true. So, so if you think ahead, the problem with the whole suite of the tax cuts, so the three tranches of the tax cuts that uh, Josh Frydenberg mapped out in the budget included provisions which effectively mean that tax cuts disproportionately fall to the wealthy. Yep. So not just in dollar terms, which everyone expects is going to happen, but in percentage terms. And we've terms, talked about this, We've Hugh. talked about this. And this is the... So if you are a Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, let's presume, going into the next election, you've got a situation where it is going to fall to you to argue that it is appropriate that the rich get larger proportional tax cuts than the poor, not just dollar terms, but proportional, are you going to wave that through even though you voted for it now or are you then going to make a second stand against it and that becomes one of the critical, you know, 
argument points but for the next they, election. But haven't they already waved it through? They would actually have to rescind it. Yes, yeah, so, well, that's right. Because, yeah. and, and they waved it through but only because if they didn't wave it through, people on lower incomes wouldn't get, tax get theirs. Cuts, yeah. And they wanted theirs to get a lower tax cut. So then an election comes along and say, look, the people on lower incomes have got their tax cuts, but we always said it wasn't a cool idea for people to get quite the level of a cut. Uh, so we're now going to reverse this. So we're now going to argue against it. I, I don't know what they're going to do because otherwise is Labor going to go into the next election and say uh, it's OK that we have a tax system that disproportionately benefits the rich? Well, it's a tough one for them, isn't it? Because even though I can see what should be an argument that can work in their favour of saying, well, we're now going to rescind those top-end tax cuts and that only affects X number of voters, so therefore this shouldn't be something that hurts us. It should be a popular policy for the rest of Australia because of all the extra cash that it creates that they can then spend on other things. Didn't work for them as an argument in the election just gone. And that's the problem, right? So quite often policies like the dividend imputation policy uh, or even the negative gearing one, which might only, but more so the dividend imputation one, which might only affect a really small percentage of people, it can still get politically blown up and people can be scared by it. The same thing could be true by this argument that, well, they're going to rescind tax cuts, even though it is only to a small quotient of the population, it may well affect the votes of a much wider franchise. Yeah, they'll call them tax hikes, of course. The, exactly. the coalition will say, yeah, Labor's hiking your taxes and so on. Well, that's a debate really now for another time because it's been put to bed for the moment by those uh, tax cuts passing through the parliament. But in the coming couple of weeks, what on earth have they got to do? They don't <laughs> well, have many policies. Look, they don't. And, uh, you know, you talk to a government person and they'll rattle off a list of parliamentary business, but most of it is low-hanging bipartisan fruit. So it's not an actual what you would call a meaty agenda There are some things on the agenda, but they're not exactly big things from the election in terms of commitments. We're going to see Christian Porter roll out his Religious Freedom Act. You know, this is something that they promised that they would do. They're going to look into that. We can talk about that perhaps in a bit more detail in a moment. But beyond that, I mean, this is your point. They they didn't really campaign on much. They campaigned on the tax cuts. Well, it took a day there when they went through the parliament. That's done, as you say. The rest of the time they were campaigning against what Labor was proposing, which Labor have now effectively in large part junked anyway. So that leaves no really substantive legislative agenda. It's a, it's a very clean slate well, for it, Scott Morrison. Well, it means they're not a reforming uh, government. Or if they decide to be a reforming government, they carry the risk of being accused of hiding these big, big plans ahead of the election. I don't think they've hit anything, to be clear. If they do muscle up and be a reforming government, which I doubt they will, but if they do... I don't think they were hiding it. I just think they had no idea ahead of the election. (laughs) (laughs) So what about this Religious Freedom Act? Uh, What are they going to come up? Well, they're going to look to provide protections, but they're in a bind. I mean, let's not forget they organised to have a review of whether we needed more religious protections in this country. A lot of people cried foul that it was a stacked review because Philip Ruddock was put in charge of it. He's obviously, of course, a high-profile ex-liberal of some note, minister and all the rest of it. But then, unfortunately for the government, they wanted a particular outcome. He actually came back and said there's not really much to worry about here. No need to, to freak out everybody. He had a couple of little ideas, but they didn't ultimately accumulate to what is now being looked at, which is this idea of a religious freedom act. So Christian Porter is is looking to, if you like, solve a problem that one of his own colleagues or ex-colleagues says doesn't exist. Yeah. 
and and Ruddock is, is is considered to be close to the kind of the the middle level soul of the Liberal Party in some yeah. ways. You know, he's he's, he's he's a moderate when he was younger, but he kind of became a bit more conservative yeah, as he, he got older. He has some credibility as an older statesman, and all the rest of it. And if he yeah. can't see something to change, it gets hard to to change it. So we don't yet know what he's going to come up with, but presumably. Uh, given the opportunities, given the expectations that have risen out of the Israel Folau case in particular, oh, yeah. they'll have to come up with something. Oh, I think so. And this is also one of those interesting ones where there might not be the need for this Religious Freedom Act, you know, you know, in a pure policy sense, at least according to what the Philip Ruddick Review says. However, that doesn't mean that politically there's not a great chunk of traditionally conservative-leaning voters who are highly religious who are worried, even if they're not right to be worried based on what the review's findings were, but are nonetheless worried about their religious freedom and they want some form of ac- action. And I wonder if, if, it's, if people are, when it comes down to it, are they worried about religious freedom or is it something a bit more native than that in the sense that whether they see it in terms of religious freedom or if that's just something to hang it off, people feel that if you are of religious faith, you don't get much respect Hmm. Uh, that, that it used to be that the people who were respected in the community going back 50 or 60 years uh, by nature were the ones who were there regularly at church. Uh, the, you know, the solid people of the community were church-going types of people who were moral and upright. And and that came with a certain respect. People who were sort of, who weren't that uh, were not so much respected. Of course, the revolutions of the 1960s tended to blow all that away but that there is a sense that among the staunchly religious, uh, soberly religious folk, that they feel there's been a loss of respect and they want that acknowledged by the political leaders in some way. Yeah, and it cuts across different areas, doesn't it? I mean, at one level, there is an issue around, you know, this idea of respect for, for people of faith uh, because of problems in the churches and we've seen all of that in the Royal Commission. The other level of it, and of course that's where everybody gets tainted by you know, the actions of a few, not to suggest that it's a small number given what we know from the Royal Commission, but it certainly is a small number relative to, you know, the, the wider number of people involved in faith-based institutions. But then you've also got this idea that what you're talking about, Hugh, it's interesting since that, that sort of revolution, once upon a time, you know, the intelligentsia was religious, whereas these days it's quite cynical and critical and almost mocking of anybody who has too much faith. And, of course, our Prime Minister is very, very much a man of faith. So, uh, yeah, I can understand. I mean, I'm not religious. You know, mm. I'm, I'm, I, I often describe myself as not arrogant enough to be an atheist any more than I'm arrogant enough to be certain that there is a God. So I'm, I'm a cop-out. I'm a agnostic. Particularly one who cares about you, Peter. Well, that's true too. I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic. I, I don't know what the hell's going on. Uh, but it's a lot of people that I talk to, at least in my circle, there are some religious types and, and they are expressing exactly what you say, that they are frustrated by the lack of respect, if you like. Now, that's not necessarily a violation of your religious freedom. That's a violation of your once proud standing in the community because of your faith and the role that it plays in your life. I think that's changed for a lot of Australians. Also, of course, religious freedoms must apply to you regardless of what religion you profess. That's where it gets a little bit more awkward in some of the... Uh, you know, in, in, in some of the nature of this debate, if I, if I could put it that way, there are, there are, I'm not saying this is the majority, but there are some people who want certain religions to be protected and not others. And this is where you get people in institutions like the Institute of Public Affairs who are freedom advocates who are often saying, look, 
sounds nice in theory, but when you start codifying freedoms, that's not necessarily a good thing. Be careful what you wish for is what they would argue and then they, of course, extrapolate that out that it would have to be all faiths and, and you know, I like the consistency of that myself but not everybody does. And it's impossible to make an argument uh, intellectually that says that religious faith should favour in a multicultural pluralistic society one religion over another. This is taking us back to you know, the times of Queen Elizabeth I. Absolutely. Um, but a lot of these people pushing this religious respect stuff, they don't necessarily, one presumes, uh, want to see a rise in status of the imams of Australia when they're making their statements, um, particularly those who might be a little bit more conservative in their in their interpretations of uh, of the Quran. Uh, they're not wanting a lot more freedom in that direction. Well, where does the ban the burqa debate go when you have a religious freedom act? Oh, very interesting stuff. Now, uh, when it comes to politics. When you can't talk about ideas, and by and large this government is not offering up a lot of ideas, policy ideas, then you wind up talking about personalities. <laughs> so we've got a new parliament after the largely ceremonial first week. We now get down to uh, to tin tacks. Who do you see as being the personalities that are going to uh, rise in the 46th parliament? How do you see the game, if you like, between Albanese and Morrison being played? Yeah, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Uh, Anthony Albanese is somebody who's facing low expectations both within his own party and I think certainly within the government. So the government has to be careful that that doesn't morph into hubris against Labor like they arguably had after their victory in 2004 against Mark Latham when they then got wiped off the political map three years later. But there aren't a lot of expectations for Anthony Albanese. I mean, he's struggling to contain the John Setka issue, even getting him out of the ALP. Uh, he's dealing with the policy fallout of what happened in the election. He's then got Bill Shorten still there uh, on his front bench and in a position of shadowing Stuart Robert on the NDIS. I mean, talk about a free pass uh, in, in an allocated role because Stuart Robert is not somebody I would predict is going to be one of the stars of this parliament. He's very close to the Prime Minister. That's how he got his Cabinet appointment. But he's a weak link rather than a strong link. So how Albanese handles the various things going on will be fascinating to watch. My former colleague when I was at Sky News, we hosted a show together, Christina Keneally, I'm interested to see how she goes because I think she's incredibly talented but I'm not sure she's suited to home affairs if the Labor Party are trying to muscle up against the government and show that they're also tough on border protection. Mind you, she, she's shown herself to be willing for the fight. She's well, that's, been very active so far. That's what I was going to say. The fascinating thing is they look like they're trying to do it a little bit differently and maybe that's why they've gone for her in that portfolio because they're trying to expose, if you like, weakness in the government on people that fly to Australia and then take this status or indeed the number of people that linger in limbo and, and all these sorts of factors. So they are not hiding from it. Uh, and one of the strategies of the last six years was, if you like, to try to take it off the agenda, put Shane Newman in there, somebody who's never going to get any media at the best of times, but that didn't work in the end. Now, those who like what Labor's doing now with Christina Keneally say we need to do something different, they see her doing that. Those who disagree, they say, no, no, we lost the election on other issues. We did not lose it on border protection. Why are we now putting that up front and centre? These are all things that Anthony Albanese is going to have to deal with. On the government side, Josh Frydenberg, well, he's going to be 
you know, busily trying to manage the budget and the state of the economy. We might, we might talk about that later. I think Christian Porter is going to be interesting to watch. I mean, the Religious Freedom Act, yep, he's doing that as AG. Uh, but he's also the Industrial Relations Minister. Will they have the courage to go after some reform in that space? Josh Frydenberg will want them to because you need that, a lot of Liberals would argue, to get the stimulus you want into the economy. But I'm not sure that they're going to go there. He's also the Leader of the House. I mean, talk about having a lot on your on your plate. Makes him the key tactician. It certainly does. And, and it elevates him in a way... He's often been touted as a future leader, but he's, you know, generationally a long way off it at this stage... This lifts him. Uh, and Peter Dutton continues to be a senior player, have a senior portfolio, which is often in the mix, and is also, of course, the unofficial leader of the hard right. But he doesn't have those seniority positions to go with that. He's more informally senior just because he's such he's a He's massively powerful. If you look at the last parliament, the people who rose in the government ranks were Scott Morrison, most obviously, because he ended up as Prime Minister, uh, but Peter Dutton. It was his term of parliament in which he really uh, became acknowledged as, as a power mm. uh, within the country, uh, a dark and malevolent force in the eyes of some and a, a saviour of security and the law in the eyes of others, certainly a hero in Queensland. There are new people coming in who are conservative, uh, to prop up those numbers who are young from uh, Philip Thompson and in, in Herbert up in Townsville uh, down to Gladys Yu down in, in Chisholm in, in, in Victoria. So uh, those numbers in the conservative end of the scale are being fattened up a little bit. I, you mentioned Gladys Yu. It's going to be fascinating to see figures like her and I'm not sort of singling her out as such. I'm talking generally these people that have won these seats that were not expected to win seats, they're always interesting to watch. Usually you see it when there's a change of government because that's when the swing is on and the tide takes out a whole bunch of seats that the government of the day that loses didn't expect uh, to necessarily lose and in come all these candidates that nobody thought would win. We've got a version of that in this election because Liberals expected to get wiped out yet actually did the opposite and they actually not only won the election but picked up seats in, in doing so. So there's a there's a bunch of new MPs on the government side that perhaps might be what you call mavericks or loose cannons or inexperienced. I mean, that's going to be a fun thing to watch. We'll have opportunities to make mistakes, I think, is a polite <laughs> way to put it. Um, let's talk about lots of other things, but let's take a quick break. If you want news delivered differently... Rebel Wilson is co-hosting the show tonight. It's confusing, Harry, because they're like, I'm also blonde and white, so... <laughs> the project is where it's at. Tomorrow is the National Day of Action Against Bullying and Violence. If it's going down... What the hell is going on? We're breaking it down. Would you go so far as to say that Facebook have destroyed democracy? We need to go back to MySpace, all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's the news tuned to a different beat. Good times, Carrie. Good times. The project, weeknights on 10. This is The Professor and The Hack. Welcome back. We're halfway through uh, episode 16. By the way, you can tweet us if you like. Uh, I'm at, at Hugh Remington and, uh, Peter, you're at... I'm at Van Onselen P. So you are. If you can spell that. Now, before we... Before, let me jump in, Hugh, if I can. I want to ask you a question about Josh Frydenberg and some reporting that you've been doing, some investigations that you've been doing into his citizenship or, and I'll let you take it from here, his potential problematic citizenship. Indeed, yeah. So uh, Josh Feinberg's name came up in 2017 when the when the citizenship thing w was at its height and ultimately, as we know, 15 uh, MPs and senators were kicked out, most of whom have since found ways to get back into Parliament, <laughs> by the way. But um, at the time, 
there was this incredibly intense uh, news conference that was held by uh, Malcolm Turnbull, deeply emotional. Josh Frydenberg was emotional. He wasn't at the news conference, but during this period he was, he was emotional because it comes to the fact that Josh Frydenberg is the son of uh, Erica Strauss as she was born. He was born in Budapest in 1943. Um, the fascists were in control. The Nazis took control completely of Hungary a few months later and they stepped up in Hungary the Holocaust to the extent that 75% of the Jews in Hungary were killed. Mm. It's appalling. And a very emotional uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who had just returned from Israel because he'd gone there for the uh, centenary of the Bathsheba um, light horse cavalry charge, uh, he gave an eloquent account of the world that little Erica Strauss had been born into, born stateless, he said, into a family that had was stateless, had been mm. rendered stateless by the fascists who had been forced into the Budapest ghetto as a prelude to be putting through the gas chambers. Uh, he basically stared down anybody who was going to challenge Josh Frydenberg on the basis of his, any possibility that he could be a citizenship. And he said it was outrageous that someone could be held to account now for a citizenship that was stripped from his own mother on the basis of the citizenship she theoretically should have held. Who could argue with that? Well, at an emotional level, nobody. Emotional. But there's some difficulty there. Mm. And that is that uh, Josh Frydenberg at the time said that he had obtained legal advice in Hungary and in Australia to the effect that he had no citizenship issues. He he declined to offer that advice, even when asked to do so by Labor's Mark Dreyfus. They uh, did not pursue him in the end and it all seemed to go quiet. Now, what Josh Frydenberg has done in the declaration he has to make to the Electoral Commission before the last election was to update your status declaration about citizenship, which is a requirement as a consequence of all of this. I was about to say that that's important for people listening to this. That didn't used to be the case, yeah. but that was one of the things that was changed yeah, by Because, because everyone was so sick to death of, of mm. these things constantly going. And in that, it's very simple, he stated that his mother was a Hungarian citizen from her birth until 1948. So throughout the period uh, from birth and through the Nazi period for all the terrible things that were stripped away from Jews, including their life, they were never actually stripped of their citizenship in Hungary. Uh, that is the argument. And uh, this leaves them with a slight difficulty and it's being exposed by a bloke called Trevor Poulton who's a lawyer in Melbourne. He doesn't live in the seat of Kuyong where Frydenberg is the MP. But uh, as of a couple of days ago, he had uh, constituents within Kuyong who were about to sign up to a petition to the High Court. Which you're allowed to do post an election. Under the Court of Disputed Returns for 40 days after the return of the writs. Uh, the deadline is effectively, it was originally going to be August the 7th. In fact, they returned the writs on June the 21st. That brings the deadline forward to July the 31st. So if you get this petition in before July the 31st, um, they would have on the face of it a pretty good case. And that's important, sorry, procedurally, but that's really interesting because that's the thing about Section 44 that fascinates me in terms of the parliament has to, in between elections, decide to refer somebody and obviously if the government controls the parliament and it's a government person, they'll just, you know, 
not do that unless there's a significant pressure to and, do and so. And we've seen exactly we've seen that's how exactly it operates. That, mm. You know, there, there was Peter Dutton as an issue not around Section 44 but around something something else around his... Not, not around citizenship mm. uh, in relation to him. Obviously, you did a lot of reporting on that as well. But... Uh, it's the fact that anyone effectively can do that as a constituent about their member. In, in, in this period... It's an empowering after, thing after, for... It, for ordinary citizens exactly. to make a case. Now, on the face of it, I've looked through these documents at, at some length. I've looked at the inconsistency fundamentally in, in Josh Frydenberg's position where he said his mother was stateless and now he says, in fact, she wasn't. I've looked at the case of Tim Hollow, who was a Greens candidate, who also was the son of Hungarian Jews. Uh, his father was born in Budapest in 1945 and came to Australia as a boy in the 1950s, so quite similar circumstances. He went looking to see if there was any possibility he could have Hungarian citizenship, discovered after a great deal of difficulty, months of trying, that in fact he did have Hungarian citizenship, spent months more of trying to get a certificate of renunciation. There's been no such certificate come been displayed by Josh Frydenberg, so he's in a degree of trouble. But there's a twist to the tale. Trevor Poulton, a long-time member of the Labor Party, uh, is described even by someone working with him as an odd bod. And he wrote a book called The Holocaust Denier about uh, six or seven years ago, self-published. It was a novel and it's about the main character is a Victorian police officer who comes to see through the myths of the Holocaust and ultimately declares himself a national socialist, a Nazi. Mm. So this is the character in his book. He's also written that he thinks that people in Australia who want an Australia that, um, if you like, privileges white and Anglo traditions should not be called neo-Nazis. He says they should be called neo-Aussies a much kinder way to reflect on people who essentially want a white racist uh, Australia. Trevor Pollard's a very quietly spoken guy. He doesn't look like any kind of a skinhead mm. neo-Nazi or neo-Aussie. He says he's not a Holocaust denier. Uh, but no one would dispute the reflection of him being potentially a bit of an odd bod. Mm. And consequently, uh, what has happened since then is that the people who are about to sign up to this challenge against Josh Frydenberg have got cold feet because yeah. they don't want to be associated with... Uh, they may want to get constitutional uh, propriety out of Josh Frydenberg and to challenge him and then see where it goes in the High Court, but they don't want to stand alongside a guy who may or may not be a Holocaust denier uh, and certainly seems to find ways of, of finding kind things to say about those who others would call neo-Nazis and that might all, in fact, disappear as a consequence of Trevor Poulton's background and what being exposed. And what will then be interesting is if it does disappear and therefore there isn't a challenge against Josh Frydenberg, even if he has a problem, uh, which he may well, uh, on the evidence, uh, apart from the individual presenting it, then the government of the day is not going to go there. I doubt the opposition no, would, no. given the circumstances, the personal circumstances. But what will be fascinating, given that Josh Frydenberg is so senior and a potential leader of the Liberal Party and even Prime Minister one day, does he make changes to ensure that he's 100% not a Hungarian citizen because of family ties between now and the next election? Because, of course, 
it only applies in the current term. You, you, you can't yes. go take somebody out for their citizenship on Section 44 from previous parliaments. You know, for example... Well, well, he could do what, what Peter Dutton has done. Peter Dutton always exactly. said he had no issues with his family childcare businesses being in breach of and then the Constitution, uh, despite the fact that there were legal opinions and constitutional law professors, as we reported, yep. as Malcolm Turnbull argued, made him ineligible potentially to stand in Parliament and potentially even for all his ministerial decisions to be overturned under challenge. Uh, no, I've got no problems. I've got my own advice. All is well and clear. But then he quietly went about and changed his family business arrangements uh, to, he now says, put him completely in the clear. It's hard though, isn't it? Because you can defend that as well as you can attack it. It depends really on whether you're cynical or not about the decisions being made. Because if you're Peter Dutton and if there are people saying there are questions even though you say there aren't, the best thing you can do is remove any of those doubts. But you have to still stand there and say, well, I've only done that because people are raising doubts which I believe are untrue but yeah. I just want to put this to bed. It would be the same for Josh Frydenberg. Yes, I yeah. think I'm fine but I'm going to make some extra changes just sure. to lock in the doubters. Yeah, look, that's fine. The uh, the issue about it, though, is lying behind it is a repeated drumbeat from Peter Dutton, from Scott Morrison and so on, members, senior members of the government, that no one is above the law. And, and when this is being bandied about against anyone that the government wants mm. to have a crack at, the sense that you're a little bit fast and loose with the law uh, builds into the cynicism of the, of the politics political body, the, the, the voters. I'm, sh I'm sort of shuffling off into a different direction, so I'll just do this briefly. But, you know, this whole concept from these guys that no one is above the law, no one is more above the law in this country than politicians. Now, don't get me wrong, at one level they have more scrutiny than the rest of us and that would be awful at a, a multitude of levels. However, this is a segue, but, you know, the whole issue around journalists and AFP raids and all of that... Uh, you know, the political class, and we've talked about this in this podcast, they leak, they violate Cabinet solidarity rules that can land you in jail, quite frankly, leaking out of Cabinet. That's a huge offence. There never seems to be much investigation of that, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how much politicians break those laws but how little anyone really seems to mind because I think the public There's just... There's very little they can do about it. Very little they can do about it. And I think the public says, ah, that's just politics. Mm. Very, very quickly, the PM has been invited off to a state dinner, a full visit by Donald Trump. Uh, he'll get to put on the white bow tie, not just the black bow tie. This makes a difference. The state visit at the White House is a big deal. Uh, I remember when John Howard did it. He was the last one, wasn't last he? Last one to get it. And uh, there's a, you know, you want a bit of pomp, the Americans lay it on as best as anyone. What do you think is going to be the relationship between Trump's White House and Scott Morrison's government? Well, you might be better placed to, to kick that one off. You were at the G20, you know, got, got a bit of a sense of, of some of the interactions there. My gut feeling is that they're actually going to get on rather well, but then, of course, it will depend a lot on how Trump fares electorally when he faces the voters before... Uh, Scott Morrison does. I mean, the interesting thing is they're very different people, you know, like even though they seem to be getting on and, and uh, you know, giving each other accolades and Scott Morrison was surprisingly buoyant in his accolades for Donald Trump, they're very different people. You look at, you know, Donald Trump's personal life versus that of Scott Morrison's, his, you know, the, the, the nature of the way that they are, one's cautious with his rhetoric, the other is anything but. Uh, they are quite different even though they're cut from the same 
sort of right of centre political cloth and I don't even understand how I describe that because they're a bit all over the place, both of them in that sense even. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I don't know. I, I, it was interesting to see how they work. Anyone, anyone who deals with Trump has to play Trump. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull played Trump quite effectively. He, people, if you look at the, uh, uh, the, um, the book uh, Fire and mm. Fury, no, it wasn't Fire and Fury, it was the, it no, was it was the one the... Fear, the, the Bob Woodward book. Um, a lot of people in that book were giving quotes to Bob Woodward uh, in which they were full of respect for the way. They said of all the leaders in the world, possibly only Shinzo Abe had played Trump better than, um, than Malcolm Turnbull. But on that first test at the G20 in Osaka, mm. uh, where the first meeting that Donald Trump had when he arrived uh, was with Scott Morrison. And That's it wasn't just a meeting, it? but it was a full dinner, sit-down dinner, with all fully arrayed with the Secretary of State, uh, with with John Bolton, with um, the you know all the, the heavyweights on one side or both sides, the trade boss for the United States across the dinner, uh, uh, Ivanka Trump um, sitting there as well on the table, and Jared Kushner. Um, that's in in you know having lived in Asia for a while. That's called giving face, and uh, Donald Trump was giving a lot of face to. Um, to Scott Morrison, so is, yeah, is, interesting, uh, isn't it? What do you think's behind that? I mean, let me posit two ideas and give me a third if you don't think it's either of these. Is <laughs> it is it that there's so few world leaders he hasn't found a way to offend one way or the other who are part of the G20 that he has to end up at Scott Morrison's dinner table first up? Or is it perhaps that Scott Morrison won a booming election victory out of nowhere uh, and, of course, then you've got the immigration issues that... Trump hopes to emulate from Australia and he says, well, I want to be with a winner uh, and somebody that, you know, pulled the rabbit I, out I of the I think Trump hat. definitely likes a winner uh, and someone who's not going to give him too much of a hard time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Trump can have dinner with whoever the hell he likes, frankly, uh, but the fact that he chose to do it with Scott Morrison is something. There was a suggestion by the travelling White House pack that they believed that Trump, in fact, had some intention to have some other dinner that night and it had not come to pass <laughs> and that Scott Morrison was... Who was free, ScoMo. <laughs> uh, but perhaps that's a reflection on their skin, uh, cynicism. But, um, look, certainly Scott Morrison, the boy from the Shire, uh, is about to be given probably the greatest piece of power pomp that anybody in the world can have. Does that and change votes, do you think? No, I don't think it changes votes, mm. but but I think, I think for anybody... It would be hard to be at the centre of that and not feel and not pinch yourself. Yeah. So there is a human element even in politicians and I think they'll go in there and get that state dinner uh, with the president pouring all kinds of love all over you and you'll think, well, um, you know, this is a long way from being the son of a copper. Yep. Well, good on him. Good for him. Good to talk to you. Welcome well, back. We'll talk as Parliament is uh, in the throes of, of debate about who knows what. We'll find out what the agendas are. Absolutely. And we'll see you on 10 News First pretty much every night. Thank you, Peter. Good to chat. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 